What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. Hi, everybody, and welcome to a very big day here on The Exchange. In one hour, we get the Fed's decision on interest rates. We know what to expect, a half-point hike, but how hawkish will the statement be? What will Chair Powell himself say in the press conference? And most importantly, what are markets positioned for? Those are all the key questions we will try to answer this hour. And as the Fed ramps up its tightening and rates are surging, it might seem like the worst time to get into growth stocks. But our guest says they're starting to look attractive and tells us which headwinds he sees abating. Plus, he thinks they'll outperform if we enter stagflation. And it's not just the U.S. Central banks around the world are raising rates. We're going around the globe looking for opportunity with longtime investor Mark Mobius. But first, Dom Chu is back and he has our market setup. up, Okay, Dom. so the market setup is you're not going to expect a whole heck of a lot of volatility ahead of the press conference, right? Because we know what's going to happen. It's 50 basis points. That's fairly certain right now. So what you've seen, to Kelly's point here, is marginal gains and losses, fractional in nature for all of the major indices. Right now, the Dow Industrial is up about one half of 1%. The S&P up about the same amount. And the Nasdaq Composite just about flat on the day. Now, I'll put this in perspective. Usually, I tell you the intraday moves. But the Fed is entering this rate hike with, right now, the Dow Industrial is currently off about 10% from record highs. The S&P 500 is down relatively uh, similar, similar, 13%, and 23% off the record highs, roughly thereabouts, for the NASDAQ composite. Just to give you an idea of where we enter with stocks near the lowest levels of the year so far. One other place to watch, especially on Fed days, is the interest rate picture and how it affects the bank stocks overall. Take a look at J.P. Morgan Chase, Bank of America, Citigroup, PNC Financial, Goldman Sachs. Generally speaking, the money center banks like J.P. Morgan, B of A, and Citi are outperforming the market today. PNC Financial, Goldman Sachs doing about a market perform, we'll call it. So keep an eye on those big banks. They are a big focus for traders on interest rate sensitive type days. And then an earnings tale of two cities, if you will, a tale of two stocks. Let's talk about hospitality and leisure, and let's look at it through the lens of Marriott International, the biggest hotel operator in the world, and then Brinker International, which is the parent company of Chili's and Maggiano's. The upper one here, Marriott, comes out with better than expected results, and a key revenue metric is expected to be at pre-pandemic levels all the way through this year. They may even reinstitute stock buyback programs later on this year. That's Marriott. Meanwhile, Brinker International misses on earnings. It comes in with better same-store sales and better revenue numbers, but it points to the bigger effects of labor costs and commodity costs, maybe pressuring things. It cuts its outlook for the year. Brinker is down now 16 17%. Marriott's up nearly two. Talk about a big divergence in hospitality and leisure, something we'll, I'm sure the Fed's going to talk about, the job and employment dynamic in the economy right now, especially for travel and leisure companies. Kel, yeah, back over to you. Those wage pressures showing up everywhere. Lyft was terrible uh, for that reason. Dom, Thank you very much. Now, yields are back on the rise today ahead of the Fed, and rate hike expectations have been climbing hour by hour. Let's get to Rick Santelli with the very latest. I don't remember this kind of action on the day of a Fed meeting, Rick. 
You know, this is truly exciting. I do remember the 94 cycle, and everybody wants to use that as a stencil for today. And I see why, except for there's two issues why I completely disagree. One is there was no Eurozone and no Euro currency to the 1999, and China wasn't even in the WTO to 2001. But outside of that, this is the most exciting session I've seen in years. And look at a week to date of two year, they lead the excitement charge just climbing up almost every session for new high yield pricing and yields. And this is incredibly aggressive. If every maturity on its high yield today would have had fresh cycle high yield closes, but they've eased back a bit. Look at an intraday of 10s. It needs to close above 298 plus to be a new post uh, high yield. And it's not quite there, but it was there 30 years, as you see. 303 plus is the bogey. They've been up at 305, but they've eased back a bit. But all these maturities, how they behave after the announcement, and I'm pretty sure we're going to see a half-point increase, and, of course, some more information on the balance sheet, those will tell. And if you look at the Fed fund contract, I like to look at December. Keep it simple, people. If you look at a one week of these Fed fund futures, it's dropping down every day. When they drop down, the percentages of more aggressive Fed tightenings go up. Year to date of the D's, you see it there the way it's plummeted. It's low today, a contract low, was 97.135. 100 minus 97.135 equals a cumulative total basis points of tightening at 286 and a half. Remember, in 2018, we raised, the market had priced in more tightenings in 2019. They turned to eases. Be careful here, folks. The market's aggressive and the Fed's aggressive, but it has to be. It's got to verbally be aggressive against inflation. Will they be that aggressive in action? Only time will tell. Rick, Kelly, back to you. Observation, since this is yeah. my last chance with you until we're uh, literally reacting to the decision. It feels like there's a lot of coiled energy in the Treasury market today, in part because of this price action. Like we're either going to jump to 315 or be down at 280 within, you know, within, within the next 90 minutes. And, and, and by the way, and maybe as importantly, there have been huge announcements from the Treasury this week about issuing a lot less Treasury supply. If there were ever a window for the Fed to be shrinking the balance sheet, the Treasury needing less borrowing would seem like the biggest window ever for the Fed to climb through here. Yes, very prescient. Those are great observations. One of the reasons is tax receipts are at historic levels, just pouring into the Treasury, allowing some of the actions you've said my own personal opinion is, is that the long end may probably not get those big closes above key levels. Two-year, three-year, five-year, and seven-year are where you're going to see, I think, the bulk of the action mm. after the Fed rate announcement. All right, Rickster, I will see you then. Thank you very much, Rick Santelli out at the CME. So why are markets scrambling to brace themselves for a more hawkish Fed today? Steve Leisman is back at the Federal Reserve in Washington, D.C. for the decision one hour from now. It's also Jay Powell's first in-person news conference since the pandemic, Steve. Yeah, and I guess I haven't been here at the Fed since January of 2020, which was the last one. But today uh, I'm back for an historic day as the Fed set to take another step in what markets now expect is going to be a fast and furious tightening cycle, one that will rival the effort of Paul Volcker in the early 80s to sharply slow the economy and combat inflation. So today's decision comes as the market, as Rick was saying, 
again raising its outlook for just how fast and furious this cycle's going to be. Uh, let me tell you just what we expect today. 50 basis point rate hike the first time in 22 years. 95 billion uh, to be announced that will come off of the balance sheet. They'll probably phase up to that. That'll be the most ever. And then language that people are looking for is where the Fed would say something like we will move expeditiously towards neutral. And that rate, at least now, is believed to be two and a quarter to two and a half percent. Rick said, keep it simple. I'm going to make it more complicated here. Fed fund futures now price in a near 3% by year. And I use the January. Rick uses December. The terminal rate, that's the highest rate in this cycle, 348 in August of 2023. These are all from 25 to almost 50 basis points higher than they were just a week ago. And they're higher today than they were this morning. So the futures market, very aggressive right now, pricing in what would be a 100% chance of four rate hikes built in, uh, a, a 50, 50 rate, basis point rate hikes built in, and a 48% chance that one of those hikes is 75 basis points. So far, as the market is priced right now, the Fed is getting to neutral by September. We'll hopefully hear at two whether the Fed and Fed Chair Jay Powell agree with such a fast and furious flight of the Fed funds rate. Kelly? It perfect encapsulation. That's, it's felt almost breathtaking over the past week. It really has. Uh, Steve, thank you, and yeah. we will see you soon. Our Steve Leisman at the Fed. Now, the countdown is on. Let's bring in our Fed panel for more analysis. Subhadra Rajapa is head of U.S. rate strategy at Society Generale. Stephen Whiting is chief investment strategist at City Global Wealth Investments. And Francis Donald is global chief economist and strategist at Manulife Investment Management. It's great to have you all here. All right, Steve Whiting, I'm going to start with you. Let's sure. respond to what Leisman just said. These markets have gotten a lot more hawkish in just the past week and, frankly, in just the past couple hours. 3% funds rate by year end now. You know, if you think that the Fed was wrong and that they went off course last year, why are you so sure that this is the right course now? For one thing, we have to account for the loss of stimulus when you're calibrating the amount of tightening you need. Federal spending is down 33% this year. I mean, Rick mentioned the strong uh, tax returns, but spending levels are down that much. Again, the Fed would be shrinking its balance sheet. At the same time, it would be giving us rate hikes comparable to 1994 when we thought the rate hikes alone were large. We're not arguing, again, that policy uh, belongs at zero, that nothing uh, needs to be done to recalibrate towards uh, the higher inflation rate. And we have real supply issues going on. But the idea that we uh, can just do all of this and the economy is going to remain intact, if they go on and start doing this even into 2023, it's off course. So this amount of tightening, it's really, really uh, getting lost again into how the economy is performing, including a weaker consumer into the second quarter. All right. Let me sort of recast that a little bit. Uh, I definitely think you're giving us the out of consensus view right now, which is that they could risk an accident on the way out, much like they frankly kind of caused a little bit of an accident on the way in. So, Badger, let me turn to you, though. Let's talk about the labor market, which Powell used the word unhealthy in his last press conference. Since then, the JOLTS data yesterday, the job openings data, jumped to a new high. There's two openings for every unemployed person in America now. There's over 11.5 million openings. And the employment cost index jumped to a record high as well, showing a 5.5% annualized gain. So in response to these data points, shouldn't the Fed be exactly as hawkish as the market is scrambling to price in? Well, I think that the job market is somewhat unhealthy, right, in the sense that you do have this very large availability 
of, of jobs. I mean, job openings, but there's just not enough people to take those jobs. So you're looking at a very tight labor market, but the, the labor market itself is somewhat displaced because you just can't source enough people uh, for these jobs. So, so my concern is that ultimately what you're going to be left with is, is a situation where as, uh, you know, the Fed starts raising rates and financial conditions start to tighten, you might see that the labor market might actually not uh, prove to be as robust as people think that, that it is. I mean, we do get very strong jobs reports. The unemployment rate on, on the face of it is very, very low. But again, that's, that's, uh, that's not the only metric. I think you're going to see cracks start to form as the Fed starts to, to raise rates. To me, the biggest concern is the tightening of financial conditions, right? You look at, um, you know, the dollar, dollar starting to strengthen quite dramatically. You look at credit spreads are starting to widen. Equities are starting to, to sell off, as well as interest rates are starting to rise. So every component of a financial conditions index is starting to show that financial conditions are starting to tighten. So it's going to be very difficult for the Fed to raise rates under those circumstances. I saw you nodding, Francis, and uh, talking about the labor market. Do you think it's weakening here? Look, if you're marking to market, where is the economy today? It looks like the Fed should be very hawkish. But if you have any model that looks forward into what the next six to 12 months looks like, almost every leading indicator of where the economy is going to go, including jobs, is looking like the momentum is going to slow. This is not a Fed that's hiking into a strengthening economy. This is a Fed that's hiking into a very material weakness, including a recession in Europe, contracting China, massive fiscal tightening. So the issue is not so much today. We know the Fed's going to go 50 basis points. It's what's their sensitivity to what a lot of economists and strategists are seeing as difficulties in Q2 and Q3. And that labor market, remember, it's lagging. It's not the first indicator of recessions or slowdowns ahead. It tends to be closer to the end of it. So we have to be looking for those leading indicators of PMIs, housing, retail sales. And every single one of those tells us this is not strength. This is not a hawkish, booming economy. This is one that's going to go into a slowdown. I feel like we are, we're sort of doing like our shadow FOMC meeting right now. And, and I, I feel like I'm going to be the hawkish dissenter here and say, no, you know, <laughs> let's raise 75. Let's raise 100. Subhadra, here's a, another point to throw at you. Curious <laughs> for your uh, take. As I mentioned with Rick, we are going to see a lot less Treasury bond issuance in the coming months because of how strong tax receipts have been. I mean, is this, in other words, less supply means higher prices, means lower yields. Isn't the risk of a yield spike much diminished because of what we just heard from the Treasury? Wouldn't this be an opportune time then for the Fed to be shrinking its balance sheet aggressively? In some respects, yes. But, you know, Treasury supply is going to eventually start catching up because, yes, the tax receipts are high now, but a year down the line, maybe spring of next year, the Fed's, the Treasury is going to have to start increasing its coupon issuance sizes because it's going to be about maybe one to one and a half trillion that the Treasury needs to finance because the Fed is poised to run off its balance sheet quite aggressively. So I, I think that the supply demand dynamics are sort of favorable over the near term. Over the longer run, you're going to have to find buyers to take down that additional supply as the Fed steps away from the market. Also, treasuries just don't look attractive to foreign investors on a currency-adjusted basis. So that's something, again, to take into consideration when it comes to the demand dynamics of treasuries coming from foreign investors. We'll talk about this a little bit later on with Mark Mobius, Steve. But, I mean, we still offer relatively attractive yields, right? I mean, 3% on our 10-year compares with, that's at least a percentage point or so higher than other developed markets, isn't it? Even currency hedged. So, so look, and the other thing to consider 
is the Fed is spent at its maximum policy rate seven months before cutting it on average in the last 45 years. It's been even shorter in periods when they've moved rapidly to tighten. So what's the outlook for inflation? That's really key here. Can you have inflation get to a level where you're really comfortable quickly? You can't. Periods like this, combined periods of supply shocks and disturbances in the economy, one after the other, are not going to get us stable prices quickly. And when central banks try to achieve that over the very short term, we have a very strong chance, again, of them being in a position where they'll be easing again. We'll worry about inflation once again uh, when we're in an easing cycle. So the Fed has been, unfortunately, pro-cyclical rather than counter-cyclical. Uh, and they have a chance, I think, again, to bring that risk down. But broadly speaking, the yield curve is always flattened when the Federal Reserve is tightened. They want to have a very hawkish quick move here. Uh, I do think that yields will peak in the bond market. All right, Francis, Donald will give you the last word. What are your parting thoughts here ahead of the Fed? Nobody is arguing the Fed should not be normalizing policy. That's clear. The problem is that word expeditiously. And to the hawkish dissenter, I say, why does the Fed need to go so quickly when rate hikes are not going to solve the true inflation that is problematic for the consumer and the system? All they can do is create deflation in other parts of the economy. You're going to end up with bifurcated inflation that doesn't help anybody. But it's demand. It's demand. All right, we'll carry this on later. Guys, this has been wonderful. Thank you so much. Francis Donald, Steve Whiting, Subhadra Rajapa. Uh, our Fed panel concludes with 44 minutes to go ahead of their big meeting. And coming up, we'll talk about what's really behind the bear market and growth stocks. One strategist says it's not just Powell's fault they've been selling off and has a list of names that could be a buy here. Plus, with rates rising globally, we'll speak with veteran investor Mark Mobius about where in the world he's putting money to work and where he's not. Uh, as we said, less than 45 minutes until the Fed's decision press conference at 2.30 Eastern. We're back after this. This is The Exchange on CNBC. Electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones, from powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY, a big idea that inspired the world to invest differently and still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. CNBC has quick and easy to understand business news updates at the open midday and close every weekday. Markets, money, and more from Wall Street to Main Street. I'm CNBC's Jessica Ettinger. Follow and listen to CNBC Business News Updates wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back. Growth stocks have borne the brunt of the market's correction as the Fed has embarked on an aggressive tightening cycle. But my next guest says it's not the Fed per se that is hurting these stocks. It's the retreat of growth investors as returns have shriveled up. He says we could be near the end of that process. Plus, he thinks growth stocks could outperform in a stagflationary environment. And with the S&P growth names down 13 percent in just the past month, Several of them are becoming attractive. For more, let's welcome in Chris Harvey of Wells Fargo Securities. Chris, it's good to see you again. So, I mean, and there has certainly been a flight from this area. That's right, Kelly. It's been a tough go. It's, it's basically a bear market. You have a lot of PMs down 20, 25 percent. 
And, and if you look at the hedge fund world, which houses a lot of growth stocks as well, they've been de-risking and de-grossing since Thanksgiving, actually. So really tough go over the last couple of weeks and last couple of months. It's followed performance, though, right? Like the Nasdaq peaked out in early November. So it, it feels like everyone just going, OK, returns are, are <laughs> heading the other way. We better leave. So won't we have to see better returns before they return? Yeah, Kelly, what we think has happened is you really mispriced the cost of not you, but but the Fed really mispriced the cost of the capital last year. We brought real rates down to a ne negative 100 basis points, which brought nominal rates or interest rates down lower. And now what we're doing is we're normalizing those rates, right? Rates are going higher. That long duration trade is repricing. A lot of the growth in tech names are longer duration. And, and what we wanted to see is we want to see real rates get back to zero. They have. We want to see nominal rates normalize. They have. And that's a real positive. And so what we're looking for at this point in time is we're watching break-evens or we're watching inflation expectations to give us a clue about when to go next and, and what to do next. And I, I think this is such an interesting aspect to this um, sort of thesis. So tell us uh, which break-evens, you know, five years, right. five years forward, 10-year, blah, 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 what you want to <laughs> see them do and, and what you want to see with real rates as well. Um, Kelly, we're pretty simple. So we just stick, excuse me, we just stick to 10-year break-evens. And what we're looking for, 10-year break-evens got as high as, say, 300 basis points. Where they're coming back down. And what we would like to see is we'd like to see break-evens below, say, 275, but maybe sharply below 275, somewhere between 250 and 275. Because what that tells us is monetary policy, the Fed's action is beginning to work. Supply and demand is starting to come back in line. That's a really nice way of saying that the economy is slowing down. And in a slowing economy, growth stocks generally begin to outperform. And, and that, that's what we're looking for at this point in time. And if we do see that occur, we think it's going to be very, very favorable for a lot of these beaten down names. Yeah, and it's a reminder, it's not just valuations on individual names you're watching. It's really a change in the whole macro environment. So what are the names here that are kind of getting on the shopping list? Uh, Netflix, Meta, talk us through it. Yeah, um, I don't go too much into individual names, but you can see what's interesting is some of these former growth stocks are still growth stocks like Facebook and and PayPal are now trading in the mid-teens, not on revenues, but earnings. So you're not just having growth managers looking at these stocks and being interested in them. You're having GARP managers getting involved. You have, even in some cases, you're having value managers looking at them. So what we like is a situation where you can see multiple investors get involved in it for macro reasons, but, but also for valuations. And you are seeing some of these former high flyers come back down to, to reasonable valuations and perhaps the macro is going to be a lot more constructive for the group. A, a parting two cents about the Fed meeting for investors? Uh, I don't I don't think there's a lot there. I, I think a lot of people talk about the Fed, Fed making a mistake. I think the mistake was sticking to QE for so long. As far as uh, Fed funds, the two years at 270, 280, I think the Fed's just going to follow the market's instructions at this point in time. And, and we have to see Fed funds go a lot higher a lot more normalization on the front end of the curve. All right. And some clues as to what you're watching for that next move in the markets. Chris, thanks so much.
Thank you. Chris Harvey of Wells Fargo Securities. Still ahead, the Fed fueled the housing boom. Now it's about to tap the brakes, maybe slam on them. We're going to look at the potential fallout with mortgage rates surging above 5.5%. And take a look at today's mystery chart, dropping 30% after the company posted a huge miss on earnings and withdrew its guidance. One legendary investor called it his top pick, his top value pick at least on this show just three months ago. We'll reveal it next. And as we head to break, here's a look at the Dow heat map with Walgreens and 3M leading the way today. Nike, one of the biggest laggards again. We're back in a moment. CNBC has quick and easy to understand business news updates at the open midday and close every weekday. Markets, money, and more from Wall Street to Main Street. I'm CNBC's Jessica Edinger. Follow and listen to CNBC Business News Updates wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to The Exchange. Let's get a quick check on markets. Dow's up 114, so we're about 60 points off session highs. We were negative by 100 points, so we've recovered there. The S&P's up 10 points. The Nasdaq is down 8, but it was much worse on the lows of the session today. Uh, so pretty decent here ahead of the Fed and in response to higher rates. Here's the sectors, kind of a mixed bag. Utilities and energy up 1%. Real estate, consumer discretionary lagging by a similar amount. They're the only two in the red right now. And let's check on the mega cap names. Apple's the only one in the green. Actually, you can see the performance improving here. It was the only one in a green, up 1.5%. Now Microsoft, Alphabet, Tesla have joined that, but Amazon is still down 2% as it's still near its lowest levels in about two years since May of 2020. Now energy prices are moving higher again. Natural gas, persistent bullish trading pattern here. You can see it, fourth line item, it's up 6% to now. Look at this, $8.44 per million BTUs. Uh, this even as Texas says a heat wave is coming. So if you're paying for nat gas electricity, you're going to be feeling the pain. Uh, and here are some of the earnings movers today. And there's a bunch of them again. Match is lower after forecasting weaker than expected revenue and announcing that its CEO is stepping down unexpectedly for personal reasons. Uh, this stock is down 55% from its all-time highs. Meanwhile, Generac, is up 9% after beating estimates and raising its sales growth outlook. This will be a familiar one to homeowners who've been trying to get uh, backup generators. These shares are up 17% this week, 10% today. So continuing the theme we saw with Sherwin-Williams as well, uh, some strength in those parts of the industry that supply these new homeowners. Our mystery chart, though, is Tupperware, and that is going the other way today. This was the name Bill Miller called his top value pick on this show in February. The stock plunging to a 52-week low after a huge earnings miss and withdrawing guidance. Their profitability was hurt by inflation and the war in Ukraine, they said, and COVID shutdowns in China. Again, the stock down 33% to $12 a share. Let's get to Tyler Matheson for a CNBC News update. Ty? All right. Thank you very much, Kelly. The Pentagon has released video showing howitzer artillery being loaded onto an Air Force plane in California headed for Ukraine. As the U.S. steps up its military assistance, a Russian official complains the West is, quote, stuffing Ukraine with weapons. Russia has been targeting railroad stations and supply lines across Ukraine, trying to slow the flow. In Moscow, meantime, Russian Air Force jets flew over Red Square in a Z formation, practicing for the country's annual Victory Day celebration next Monday. The Kremlin uh, dismisses speculation that Putin will use the occasion to expand his, quote, special military operation into a full-out declaration of war. And at an abortion rights rally, New York State's attorney general told the crowd that just after her election to the New York City Council, she was faced with the decision of whether or not to have an abortion. 
I chose to have an abortion. I walked proudly into Planned Parenthood. And I make no apologies to anyone. And tonight on the news with Shep Smith, Senate Democrats moving toward a vote in the Senate to turn Roe v. Wade into federal law. Kelly, back to you. All right, Tyler, I will see you for the Fed. Still ahead, the last time my next guest was on this program two months ago, he said you got to be in equities to beat inflation. Given the market's performance since then, would he still agree? Mark Mobius joins us next on The Exchange. Whether it's the U.S., U.K., Germany, Canada, Japan, yields around the globe have jumped substantially this year. Our 10-year Treasury yield started at less than 1.5% in January. It's since doubled to roughly 3%. In Germany, the 10-year boon was at negative 0.1%. That's in the middle there. Uh, now up at positive 1%. Similar picture in the U.K. where yields have doubled. In Canada, where they've also doubled. In Japan, where they've also doubled, even though they're still low by uh, any measure. What What's it all mean for investors and where are the best and worst opportunities with us once again is Mark Mobius, the founding partner at Mobius Capital Partners. Mark, it's good to have you here. I mean, do you, broadly speaking, agree with Paul Tudor Jones or not that, you know, nothing is working in this environment? Not really. There are tremendous opportunities. I just came back from Sri Lanka and of course it's a big political disaster there. Their debt is down dramatically and that spells an opportunity because I believe eventually they will pay up and, of course, at a big discount, but you can pick up Sri Lankan bonds at a big, big discount now. And then if you look at Southeast Asia, look at Malaysia, Indonesia, Thailand. I was just in Thailand as well. Uh, The tourism's picking up. And, you know, Indonesia and Malaysia are big producers of palm oil and other commodities, which are now rising in prices pretty dramatically. So there are opportunities there as well. What's the time frame, though? Because when I hear about Sri Lanka and some of these places, I think I don't know if they're going to be the best stewards of capital over the long run. No, over the long run, no. For bonds, uh, absolutely not. But in the short run, uh, because of the very pessimistic scenario, everybody has been selling out at very low prices. So there's an opportunity to buy in at extremely depressed prices. Let's talk developed markets. And, um, you know, there's a couple different things to ask you here. I could ask you about the bonds, but it seems pretty obvious that, you know, I don't know if there's anywhere that you're eager to buy uh, bonds right now because you think that would be a great investment. Maybe it's the stocks, which, like you said last time, that's the only way to protect yourself against inflation. I mean, do you still believe that in developed markets that you can stick with equities? Oh, definitely. No question about it. Particularly in this environment with rising rates, uh, the bond market is very dicey because, okay, you can buy short-term bonds and makes a little money, but if you go long, you can really be killed with rising rates. And I believe rights, uh, the rights uh, of some bonds have been going at an extremely crazy price, and I don't think it's a good idea to get into that market at yeah. this stage. Fair but enough. equities, as I said, equities are the way to go because companies that are able to adjust their prices in line with inflation and in line with interest rates, most importantly, they will do very well. 
So not just any old equities, but equities with pricing power, which obviously investors are, are really keen for right now. Um, are there any parts of the globe that worry you that you would definitely stay away from? Well, Europe in general is uh, looking very dicey with this situation in Ukraine. I know some people are interested in Europe at this stage, but I would stay away generally. Uh, the U.S. looks very good in the context of the total uh, global scenario. That's the reason why U.S. dollar is doing so well. And then, of course, further afield in India, uh, they're doing very good things there. And the market is going to do very well in the future, I believe. All right. India also with a, a rate hike overnight. Do you want to offer a parting word for investors? Uh, we're about 20 minutes away from the Fed decision. Uh, what, what would you say? What, what would your best advice be about the, cent the central bank right now? Uh, don't be afraid of higher interest rates. If you look at the history of the stock market, the S&P 500 and interest rates, there's very little correlation. The market can perform very well with high interest rates. So don't be afraid. Look at the companies individually and buy those with a good return and pricing power. Do not be afraid. Sage words. Uh, it's great to have you back, Mark. Thanks for your time. Thank you. Mark Mobius with Mobius Capital Partners. Still ahead, my next guest says, well, the Fed is going to have to hike until it hurts. He explains what he means by that and what it means for the markets and for the economy. With just about 20 minutes to go until the big decision, press conference a little less than an hour from now, we will have it all covered for you. Keep it here. The exchange is back in two. Welcome back to The Exchange. We're just moments away from the rate decision at the top of the hour. Let's get a check on yields heading into that. The 10-year at 2.987. So it's really rocketed back up towards that 3% level today. Similar moves, as Rick Santelli pointed out, uh, across the rate complex here, more or less flirting with uh, multi-year highs. Now, as for stocks, the S&P 500 initially rallied after the Fed's last meeting in March, only to give up all of those gains and fall to a new year-to-date low last week. My next guest is here to warn investors that the Fed is going to have to hike until it hurts. What does he mean by that? Let's bring in Ethan Harris. He was the first Wall Street economist to forecast this aggressive tightening from the Fed. Ethan, it's great to have you back today. Uh, explain. Well, I mean, the problem is that the Fed started the hiking cycle a little too late. And as a result, you've got a labor market that's not just hot, it's record hot. And it's not going to slow down anytime soon. So by the time we get to, say, the end of this year, we're probably looking at an unemployment rate of only 3% with many other indicators of labor market tightness. That's too much to keep inflation under control. So the Fed's probably going to need to slow the economy down enough to really cool off uh, the labor market. And so that's why I say they have to hike until it hurts. And depending on how serious the inflation problem is going into next year, you know, is it running at 3% or 4% or whatever, uh, that will determine how painful this is. I don't know if you caught our panel at the top of the hour, but if I had to summarize in a nutshell, I'd say their concern is the Fed is going, they, they made a mistake by being too dovish at the start, and now they're going to make a mistake by being too hawkish during this phase. What would your response to that be? I don't agree. I mean, they, they definitely made a mistake by late waiting too long. I think the case for rate hikes was already there back in October when you saw inflation starting to spread out broadly in the economy, and it became clear that the labor market was going to seriously overheat. So they waited about six months too long. But you don't fix a, that mistake by, uh, by not being tough now. They have to 
push the economy into a weakened state if they're going to be serious about fighting inflation. If you go back to the history of serious inflation problems in the U.S., this is what the Fed did in the 1970s. They didn't get inflation under control early in the process. They let it keep coming back and back and back until you finally had to get Volcker to come in and absolutely hammer the economy. That's not the right way to do things. You want to nip it in the bud, and they need to do that in the next year or two. The Dubs say that food and energy prices are not uh, caused by excess demand. In other words, if the Fed is trying to ameliorate those price hikes, they're using the wrong tool to fix the wrong problem. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, inflation's, the Fed's had some bad luck here, and some of the price inflation is definitely out of their control. I mean, they don't control commodity markets. They don't control the food market. What they do control is whether you have a seriously overheating labor market and whether you have broad inflation that's affecting uh, other parts of the economy. And if you look at the data right now, um, you know, inflation for the typical product Forget about used cars and gasoline, all that stuff. The typical inflation rate in the economy right now is 3 or 4%. And that's just too high. That is the Fed's responsibility. It's not their job to get food and energy prices down. It's the kind of middle of the distribution, the typical price increase that's, that's been let out. The genie's come out of the bottle. Do they have a communication problem, Ethan? Because it strikes me that the success you're describing in fighting inflation is going to look like failure to a public who might be experiencing recession at that point. Yeah, I, I think that they don't have easy choices now. I have a lot of sympathy for the Fed. Um, you know, I wish they'd started earlier, but now the choices are pretty uh, stark. Um, unfortunately, I think that there's still one step in the messaging out of the Fed. Right now they're saying we think we can normalize without hurting the economy. That seems mighty optimistic to me. I don't see how they can, that can be true. Um, I think they need to come clean at some point and say, listen, we're not trying to kill the economy, but we need, some, we need to reverse some of this overheating. And so we need to go through a period of very low growth. And yes, we could get a recession. That's an honest appraisal of where we are right now. Or maybe to clarify the primary target, which is inflation, to say we are going to hit X percent no matter what the fallout is. Yeah, and to, to understand the public, uh, public to understand the lessons of history, which I talked about earlier, that you, know, you want to get inflation early, not late. It's much easier to get it down. You can do it with a modest slowing in the economy or a very mild recession if you do it early. If you wait until what the Fed did in the 1970s with Volcker in 1979 to 1982, you end up just killing the economy in the process. They had to raise the funds rate to 20% right. uh, by then. So you definitely don't want to go down that path. So let's get a little bit of, you know, it's kind of like a, you know, a little bit of medicine now is, a, 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 you know, prevention's the better, better than cure. So let's do a little bit of, take a little bit of medicine now uh, so we don't have to do an even tougher uh, battle, you know, three, four, five, ten years from now. Well, I think this was a perfect curtain raiser uh, for this decision and for the press conference. Ethan, thanks for your time. Thank you. Ethan Harris with B of A. Still ahead, the Fed had a big hand in fueling the pandemic-induced housing boom over the last couple years. Now it's trying to do the opposite. The question is, what's it mean for housing? Less than 15 minutes left until the Fed's decision. Keep it right here on CNBC.
Welcome back. Home prices at record highs, inventory at record lows, and look at the 30-year fixed mortgage rate above 5.5%. The Fed played a role in getting us to this point. Now it's shifting gears again. Diana Olick has more on the potential fallout. Diana? Well, Kelly, it's all about interest rates. When the pandemic started, the average rate on the 30-year fix dropped from just over 4% all the way down to 2.75. It set more than a dozen record lows in 2020 alone, and rates stayed low through the end of last year. Why? Because the Fed not only kept its key interest rate at zero, but it also restarted its large-scale purchases of agency mortgage-backed bonds and now holds 30% of those outstanding bonds. Big Fed demand kept mortgage rates low. That lit a fire under home prices, which are up nearly 34 percent since the start of the pandemic. Low rates give buyers more spending power, of course. But now the 30-year fix has spiked up to over 5.5 percent just in the last few months because the Fed stopped buying MBS and is about to start selling off its balance sheet, in addition to raising its rate, which pushed the 10-year Treasury yield to its highest since 2009. Mortgage rates loosely follow that yield. So for home buyers today, with both higher home prices and higher interest rates, the monthly mortgage payment for the average home is now about $1,800 more than it would have been at the start of the pandemic. As a result, 95% of the 100 biggest U.S. housing markets are less affordable than their long-term levels. That figure was 6% at the start of COVID. Kelly? And this could be a big Fed meeting to find out whether they will actually sell mortgage-backed securities from their portfolio. Absolutely. And if we see that and we see mortgage rates moving even higher and affordability moving even lower, that just pulls more buyers out of the market. And we have seen home sales dropping for the past five months. The question then going forward is what effect does that have on home prices? Generally, there's a six month lag between the two, but there's still so much demand out there. And as you said, so little supply. Absolutely. Diana, for now, thank you very much, Diana Olick. That does it for The Exchange, everybody. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place. CNBC has quick and easy to understand business news updates at the open midday and close every weekday. Markets, money, and more from Wall Street to Main Street. I'm CNBC's Jessica Ettinger. Follow and listen to CNBC Business News Updates wherever you get your podcasts.